And we're back with episode three of the Dead Too Early theme. This is the Music Madness podcast, and that means I'm your host, Kent. Dead Too Early means artists who died before the age of 50 and who are still producing music at a high level. In our first two weeks, we're doing what we're calling our play-in matchups, where what we're what our play-ins, um, we're building towards a 32-artist bracket, but right now we're whittling down our lower seeds. We have two eights, two sevens, two sixes, two fives in each of the four sub-brackets, and they're battling it out for their place in the final 32. That way we can spend a little more time with these lower artists and really uh, have some opinions as we get into the, the final 32. So the way I've broken up the bracket this time is by the way the artist died. In episode one, we went through eight artists who had died for health reasons. We had Big Pun defeat Keith Whiteley for the eight seed. Cass Elliott from the Mamas and the Papas beat Easy e from NWA for the seven seed. Um, Amy Winehouse beat Nat King Cole to become our six seed. And Karen Carpenter knocked off Pigpin McKernan for the five seed those are some big big names that have already moved on in that bracket and now we're going to unload who um, moved on in episode two which was last week where we went through artists who died from freak accidents our eight seeds were jim croce i was corrected on the pronunciation of his name on discord versus richie valens at the seven seed we had r&b artist Aaliyah against blues rocker stevie ray vaughn from double trouble for our six seed, we had country superstars Patsy Cline and Hank Williams duking it out. And finally, for our five seed, we had Lisa Left Eye Lopez from TLC versus Dwayne Allman, the guitarist from the Allman Brothers. We'll debut their opponents in three weeks, but here are the results of those matchups. At the eight seed, we have Jim Croce defeating Richie Valens to move on. For our seven seed, we have Aaliyah knocking off Stevie Ray Vaughan to take the seven seed. At the six seed, Hank Williams is moving on. And at the five seed, in one of the closest votes we've had so far in this entire podcast, Dwayne Allman barely defeats Lisa Left Eye Lopez to move on to the next round as the five seed. So there's our results from that uh, vote in week two. So it is really crazy to me that some of those artists are already out. Um, so for our third group, we're going to go through a tough one. I know I said in our first episode, if you're struggling with addiction, please seek help. This list is a warning of what can happen if you don't seek help. I've included the number for substance abuse hotline in the description. Call it, please, if you need any sort of help. With this, that said, this sub bracket is made up of artists who died from drugs or an overdose. It is incredibly sad that there are enough artists to have their own sub bracket um, because just so many of them died from some sort of drug overdose. In my opinion, this might be the most stacked bracket in the competition. There are massive artists in the bottom eight, so you can only imagine who our top four are. But let's start with these bottom eight seeds and really kind of work through it and talk a little bit about um, these people and celebrate what they were able to create in their short lives. Our first artist is rapper Malcolm James McCormick, better known by his stage name, Mac Miller. He was born in 1992 and grew up in Pittsburgh. It's crazy to me to be talking about somebody who in this bracket who was born in the 90s, but here we are. 
he grew up playing sports like football and lacrosse, but at 14, he discovered rapping and quit everything else. He once said, once I hit 15, I got really serious about it, and I found out hip-hop is almost like a job, and that's what he did. So in hip-hop, they start, um, they they sometimes will release things called mixtapes, and that's where he really would shine. And what those are, they're independent releases that are put out through a various number of uh, social media sites, or back in the day, it used to actually be a mixtape where they would put it together and actually put it out as a cassette. So he started gaining a following on social media pretty young. In 2010, he won a bunch of awards at the Pittsburgh Hip Hop Awards, including the best rapper under 21, and he was 18 at that time. He signed for an independent label in Pittsburgh and did most of the work for himself. He was featured by hip hop magazine XXL as the freshman class list of up and coming rappers, alongside what are now household names like Kendrick Lamar and Meek Mill, both of which are huge rappers in the day and age. Today, I mean, Um, the way he rapped was a combination of different instruments and flow, which was incredibly smooth. In 2011, he put out his fifth mixtape, which charted um, called Best Day Ever. And it had the single Donald Trump, which was his first song on the Billboard Hot 100. Again, this was put out in 2011. So this was before Trump became president or even was thinking about running for it. And it was more about being uh, it was uh, being on his Donald Trump stuff which was really kind of funny. It went platinum. From there, it was only up. His first studio album was called Blue Blue Slide Park, and it was released in 2011 alongside this one, and it debuted at the top of Billboard's Hot 200 album list. It was the first independent album to do so since Snoop Dogg's Dog Food in 1995. That just tells you how big the potential of this rapper was, was to do something that Snoop Dogg hadn't done in almost... 25 years. So um, just tells you where this guy was headed. In 2014, Miller started his own record label titled Remember with a capital R-E-M and signed a distribution deal with Warner Brothers. It seems like all this dude did was make music. In the eight years he was active, he produced 13 mixtapes, six studio albums, and a live album, which that's more than most artists produce in an entire massive career, much less than eight years. All six of his studio albums charted into the top five. His biggest songs were The Way, which featured a partnership with his one-time girlfriend and really close friend, Ariana Grande, and Weekend, which featured the singer Miguel. Weekend really sounded like a call for help. Miller had a long-standing and well-documented problem with depression and addiction. He started off with marijuana, but he found that his favorite thing was a cocktail of drugs known as Lean, which is promethazine and codeine. Basically, it's cough syrup in soda that as you get more and more addicted to it, you start augmenting it with codeine. From there, he started using cocaine, Xanax, and oxycodone. In September of 2018, he was found unresponsive in his home by his assistant. He was pronounced dead. Um, He had been about to uh, record a music video that day and was leaving for tour that night, so it wasn't intentional. Toxicology reports found that he had taken oxycodone pills, which were laced with fentanyl, which had killed him because it had been such a heavy dose. He was only 26 years old. He's the kind of artist that makes this pod fun for me because I knew of Mac Miller before this, but I'd not really listened to a lot of his stuff closely. I like rap well enough, but I don't listen to a lot of it. But 
in going through this, I've listened to a lot of Mac Miller and I'm going to, I've added a lot of his songs kind of to a playlist that I'm going to listen to a lot more. And after reading through a lot of these things and some of the records that he was setting in his early career, I feel like he actually may be a little underseeded as going for an eight seed, but we'll see what y'all think as he go through. And his opponent for the eight seed is Andrew Roy Gibb, who went by Andy Gibb. Andy is the younger brother of Barry, Robin, and Maurice Gibb, a.k.a. the Bee Gees. He was born in England, but moved to Queensland, Australia. His parents moved him all over the place. He was back to England by age nine. At age 13, he had dropped out of school. His parents moved to Ibiza, Spain, and then later back to the island of Man, outside of England. Andy received a guitar from his brother, Barry, and he would play clubs in all of those different places just as a musician. Andy was much, much younger than his brothers, which is why he never joined the Bee Gees, but they had a lot of influence on him and how his career went. At 16, his first band was named Melody Fair, which is a Bee Gees song. His brothers wrote a number of the songs for this first group, but none of them really hit. His brothers urged him to move back to Australia. Barry, the oldest brother, believed that the Bee Gees time there had really helped them hone their skills, their sound. Um, his move there was a mixed success. His brothers supported him, so he didn't work very hard. The rest of his band quit and went back to England. He put out a few singles and was on TV a few times, but nothing really went big. He recorded his first minor hit called Words and Music, which charted in Australia, but didn't really go anywhere outside of that. Andy moved to Hollywood and was introduced to cocaine at this point. His brother's influence continued to drive his career as their manager signed him to a contract and moved him to Miami. He started working on his first album with his big brother, Barry. Barry wrote his first massive hit, I Just Want to Be Your Everything. He went to number one in the U.S. and Australia in 1977. I'll be honest, I had never heard this song before. It's a disco Bee Gees song. It would have fit right in on um, uh, Saturday Night Fever. Love is Thicker Than Water was also written by his brother Barry, hit platinum, and also went to number one, largely because of the success of Saturday Night Fever. Like they, the, His brothers kind of created the hype around Saturday Night Fever, and disco just was hot. Um, Andy's next album was called Shadow Dancing, and this was really the peak of Andy Gibb. It was released in 1978, and the title track was written by all four of the Gibb brothers together. It went straight to number one and stayed there for seven weeks. He was the first solo male artist to ever have three straight singles go straight to number one, which is kind of a crazy stat. He had a few other top 10 hits from that album, but this was really when it was all about Andy Gibb. Gibb hosted a show called Solid Gold for a few years. At this time, he was cast in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat on Broadway, but he was fired soon after because he kept missing rehearsals due to large cocaine binges. He just wouldn't show up. The cocaine enhanced his insecurity. Being the younger brother of the Bee Gees left him feeling unworthy all the time and like they had pretty much given him his career. A number of producers and actors commented on how he tried too hard and how he would turn to cocaine when he felt like his efforts were underappreciated. In 1984 and 1985, he did a few shows in Vegas, but it was obvious he wasn't right that the drugs had kind of taken over. His family convinced him to seek treatment. He enrolled in the Betty Ford Clinic. After rehab, he tried creating more music, attending festivals, and did an international tour. 
His brother Barry got Island Records to offer him a contract, but he missed the meeting due to a panic attack. So they didn't sign. In 1988, he was still battling depression and began drinking heavily. He entered a hospital in London with chest pains. And the next day, he slumped over in his chair and died from heart inflammation. Cocaine had weakened his heart so badly that he couldn't survive it. He was only 30 years old. His drugs basically ruined an incredibly promising career, um, which is just incredibly sad. All right, on to our seven seed matchup. Our first play-in contestant for the seven seed is Shannon Hoon, who is the lead singer of the band Blind Melon. Hoon was born in Lafayette, Indiana. He had a stepsister named Anna and a stepbrother named Tim. In 1985, Hoon joined a glam rock band at 18 and moved to L.A. because he wanted to make music his career. In L.A., he met a guy named Brad Smith and another named Roger Stevens at a party. He played them a song he'd created with his band back in Indiana, and they formed a band. In 1990, they brought in Christopher Thorne and Glenn Graham, and they formed a band named Blind Melon. I had no idea where the name came for this, but supposedly there was a character on a Cheech and Chong album named Blind Melon Chitlin, and that's where they said that it came from, was a Cheech and Chong skit, which is funny to know. The reason I mentioned Hoon had a stepsister named Anna earlier was because she was actually a high school classmate of rocker Axl Rose, who was the lead singer of Guns N' Roses. While he was in L.A., Hoon met Rose and they became actually pretty close friends. Um, in fact, Hoon actually sang backup on two GNR songs. One's called The Garden and the other's called Don't Cry. Um, there, he's He actually would hang around and sing backup on a few other songs, too, that he's uncredited on. So it's interesting to know, like, their sounds were so different between GNR and Blind Melon, but that he was singing on those albums. In 1992, Blind Melon released their self-titled debut album. It was produced by Pearl Jam's producer, and there were big expectations. The album had a retro southern rock sound that was pretty unique for the 90s. Grudge was the sound de jour, and this was something more bluesy. Their biggest hit off the album was called No Rain. Other songs, Change and Tones of Home, had similar melancholy southern twang, but No Rain was their hit. It still gets radio play to this day. The album achieved four times platinum sales. MTV played the music video a lot, and that's what really drove their sales. The band put out two other albums called Soup and Nico, but neither of them really had any notable songs off them. The group toured extensively in support of their albums, including they played Woodstock 1994. In 1995, Hoon's daughter Nico Blue was born, and he entered rehab. Um, the success of their first album had driven him to cocaine. He saw the birth of his daughter, and in 19... And then in 1994, the suicide of Kurt Cobain, and he wanted to make sure he was around for his daughter. He got a drug counselor to join him on their tour in 95. Sadly, though, being on the road turned him back to his addiction. After a really terrible show in Houston, he went back to his bus and binged cocaine all night. They were supposed to play New Orleans the next day, and the manager went to wake him up, and they found him dead from an overdose. He was only 28 years old. His opponent may be one of the brightest flameouts on the entire list, which is saying something. The band he was a part of created an entire genre that is still massive to this day. 
Sid Vicious or Simon John Ritchie and the Sex Pistols may not have created the punk rock genre, but they surely brought it to prominence globally. He had a rough upbringing. His mom, Anne, moved him to Ibiza, expecting his father to join him there, but his dad never showed up. She moved back to England and married a man named Christopher Beverly, but he died six months later. At that time, he started going by the name John Beverly. His mom became a heroin addict soon after this and actually kicked him out of the house around 16. So he was out on his own that early. In 1973, he met another student named John Linden, who introduced him to his friends John Gray and John Wardle. They started a band named The Four Johns and each took on a persona or a nickname. Wardle became Jawabble and John Linden became known as Johnny Rotten and Beverly became Sid Vicious. In 1975, Rotten started a band with Glenn Maddock and Paul Cook named the Sex Pistols. Vicious would often hang around with them, but he wasn't actually part of the band at this time. Sid founded his own band, The Flowers of Romance, with Keith Levine, who would go on to found a little-known band called The Clash. Um, Vicious would actually play bass, and during this time, Sid got into a number of altercations, and he was arrested while playing drums for another band. While high, he actually threw uh, a glass into a crowd, and it blinded a woman. In 1977, Glenn Maddock quit the Sex Pistols. He said he was sick of Johnny Rop Rotten and all the crap that came with him. There's another story that their manager wanted to introduce an element of chaos to the band. Um, and Sid Vicious was a huge fan of the Sex Pistols. And the band's manager's name was Malcolm McLaren. He would often encourage Vicious to get drunk and encourage him to start issues or fights at the show. As an example, the Sex Pistols signed for a record company called A&M. To celebrate, they just went into the company's offices and trashed their corporate offices. They set off to celebrate at a bar, and while there, they cornered a BBC DJ who had a show on up-and-coming artists and said they threatened to kill him if uh, he didn't have the Sex Pistols on his show. Oddly enough, Procol Harum's road crew was in the, the bar, too, and saved the DJ and got in a fight with the Sex Pistols. Just crazy. The next day, A&M dropped them and Capitol Records banned them from their record studios, which only really actually grew with Legends of the Six Sex Pistols. The thing was, for all of the publicity that Vicious brought to the band, he wasn't a great bassist, which is interesting to think. Um, he was there more or less for the image. They put out their first album in 1977 timed Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, and Vicious didn't actually play most of the bass on that album. However, the album was a massive hit. Anarchy in the UK, God Save the Queen, Pretty Vacant, and Holidays in the Sun all charted in the UK. God Save the Queen hit number one in the UK. The album is actually listed as number 73 on the Rolling Stones' top 500 albums of all time. However, there was a ton of controversy around the name of this album. The word bollocks was banned for profanity rules in the UK. Record stores weren't allowed to display the name. Richard Branson's Virgin Records ate up the controversy and signed the band and sold the album, which went platinum. This was the only album that the band actually put out with all of its members. As Johnny Rotten left the band in 1978, just because he was a prick for the most part, um, and he was in constant conflict with every single member of the band, including Vicious. 
1977, Vicious had picked up a pretty nasty addiction to heroin. He was only 19 at this time. He said he had gotten the drugs from his mom, who was still a user. He started dating a groupie named Nancy Spurgeon, who was also an addict, which enabled him. She'd tour with the band and get them drugs, but most of the band members hated her. They were a volatile and destructive pair. The band set off on a tour of the U.S., and Warner Brothers um, actually acquired the U.S. rights to the band, but they required that Rotten get clean before the tour, so they got him on methadone, they banned Spurgeon from touring with them, and McLaren limited his daily allowance to 14 bucks to try and keep him clean. He even went on stage in Dallas with the words, Gimme a Fix, carved into his chest with a razor blade, so he was just bleeding down. After Rotten left the band, the other three members tried to keep going because they had signed a three-record deal with Virgin. However, their tour was over, so they split up. Sid took a flight from San Francisco to New York, and when he got to New York, he was in a coma because of the combination of alcohol, methadone, and diazepam that he had in his body. Doctors told him he'd be dead in six months if he didn't change his life. Vicious played a few shows with some combinations of other bands and artists, but they never really put out any musical albums. In October of 1978, Sid and Nancy hosted a party at the Chelsea Hotel in New York City. Vicious took a drug called Tuanol, which is a sleeping pill. I guess he took like 30 tabs of it or something like that, which eventually became a controlled substance. The next day, Nancy was found dead in their bathroom with a stab wound in her stomach. Sid was found roaming the hallways in like a stupor, claiming that he'd actually killed her. He was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. The bail was paid $50,000, and he was told not to leave New York City. Supposedly, Virgin Records was paying for all of this because of the publicity and just sold records. Sid didn't take it well. Um, his manager, McLaren, hired him, a, hired him a psychiatrist and told his mother that he couldn't be left alone. Even so, they left to go get a pop or something like that, and he had slashed his own arms with a light bulb and had to be run to the hospital. He continued to say in interviews he just wanted to die. Later in December, Sid went to a nightclub with some friends and started flirting with a woman, and her boyfriend told him to knock it off. Vicious smashed a beer bottle and stabbed him in the face. He got arrested for assault, sent to Rikers Island for detox, and somehow they let him off for only 10 k in bail money, and even got his parole requirements lowered. He was allowed to leave New York City. In February of 1979, he finished his court-appointed detox programs and immediately got a friend to get him heroin. He had a freedom party with a bunch of other people from the punk scene and started doing heroin again. He started nodding off and his friends gave him a few quaaludes to help him sleep. The next morning, his mom and his then-girlfriend, Michelle Robinson, discovered him dead. He was only 21. Take this with a grain of salt, but his mom, Ann Beverly, who was also a heroin addict, addict said that Vicious had made a suicide pact with Spurgeon and that he'd intentionally OD'd. She said that he'd, she'd found a suicide note in his jacket, but that had been before he went to Rikers. It's just so sad, because he was so young and really just kind of flamed out super early in life. Okay, so we're halfway through. Um, so crazy enough, those are just the seven seeds. Um, we're, we're getting into the six seeds now, and I told you, this bracket is stacked. At the six seed, we have a rapper named Juice World. His actual name was... Jer Gerard Anthony Higgins, and he was born in 1998. I know I said Mac Miller being born in 92 made me feel old. Um, Juice being born in 1998 makes me feel real old. Um, that just feels crazy to have someone that was born in 98 on this list. Um, 
Juice became a leading figure in the emerging emo rap scene, and he's one of the biggest artists to ever come out of the platform called SoundCloud, which is an independent website that gives artists a chance to push their music out independently. Um, Juice World is known for his improvisation. He said that on most of his albums, he didn't actually write the lyrics down. He just made them as it went, went along. He would hear a beat, and he would start having an idea of what he wanted the song to be about, and then he would just spit it out then and there, often in one take, and just record it there, which is it's insane and crazy to hear. That's how an artist actually produced music, and not so much music as we'll get into. So Juice World was from Chicago, and he grew up in a very conservative house. His mom wouldn't actually let him listen to hip-hop. But he was allowed to listen to pop music and rock, which had a massive influence on the sound that he created as he grew up. He listened to an eclectic group of artists like Black Sabbath, Fall Out Boy, Megadeth, Panic at the Disco, Billy Idol. He started playing guitar, piano, drums, and other instruments as a kid, which really became evident as he started to produce his own music. In high school, he discovered rap. And he started uploading his own songs to SoundCloud. He'd record them on his phone and just upload them. Sadly, around the same time, he discovered drugs. Just like Mac Miller, he started drinking lean. It was the cough syrup soda mixture. But that led to Percocet and Xanax, which he used quite a bit. In high school, he started recording, like I said, on his phone and uploading them to SoundCloud. In 2017, he uploaded the song called Lucid Dreams which was off his first full-length LP called 999. Lucid Dreams was later released on another album, but the song has over 2.1 billion streams on Spotify, which is one of the most streamed songs ever on the platform. And this was all just off his initial LP, which was the first thing he ever released in 2017, right? Like that's, he was 19. The song got the attention of record albums and he was signed to a deal. He put together a three-song sample which contained the single All Girls Are the Same, which turned into a popular music video and has over a billion streams as well on Spotify. Um, this got him signed to Interscope Records with a $3 million advance, which is huge. After the video, Lucid Dreams was re-released and hit number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and became the most streamed song of 2018. His third song, Lean With Me, which if you have been paying attention, Lean is uh, means other stuff, um, which is all about his drag, drug use, and it peaked at number 68 on the Hot 100. These three songs were put into his first full album, which was called Goodbye and Good Riddance. It seemed like he was already kind of like priming the pump on what was going to happen. His next album was called Death Race for Love, was his last one before his death, and was really his coming out party. He partnered with a lot of big stars on this, um, RM and Suga from the K-pop group BTS, Ellie Golding and a number of others. Prior to this album, he went on tour with Nicki Minaj. He featured on Travis Scott's Astro World album, which was also huge. He'd done a song for the Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse soundtrack. He was everywhere in 2018. In December of 2019, Juice was flying from LA to Chicago. When they landed in Chicago, law enforcement was waiting for him. They had had a tip that there were drugs and weapons on board the plane that he was on. They found 70 pounds of marijuana on board. However, they also found Juice World convulsing on the plane. He was taken to a local hospital and was pronounced dead. He'd ingested a large amount of codeine and oxycodone to hide them from law enforcement. As I heard it, he had put his drugs into a balloon and swallowed it, 
and there was a leak in the balloon. Needless to say, that much codeine and oxy is enough to kill anyone. And he was only 21 years old. After his death, a number of projects that he had been working on were released. Um, he had put together a collaboration with Eminem, which was called Godzilla, which was released and it hit number one, number three on the Hot 100. After that, an album named Legends Never Die was also released. The, the album debuted at number one on the Hot 200, led by the singles Come and Go, which featured a DJ named Marshmallow, and Life's a Mess, which featured Halsey. Including these two songs, five off that album charted in the top 100 on Billboard, and they all hit Billboard's top 10. Um, two other albums were released after his death, but didn't chart as well as that did because he wasn't around to put it together, right? It's incredibly sad to talk about the wasted talent here. He was also credited being the incre- just an incredible freestyler. Uh, many said people said he was one of the fastest rappers they'd ever seen. And they couldn't believe that he did it all by just the age of 21. So I know I put this matchup together, but I hate this matchup. Uh, I really, really like both of these artists, and I hate that one of them has to go home this early. Juice's opponent is Bradley Noel, who was the lead singer of Southern California's ska reggae punk band named Sublime. So it feels like Noel didn't die that long ago, but he died two years before Juice World was born, which is crazy to me in 96. Um, Noel was born in South Southern California, and both of his parents exposed him to music early on in his life. His dad introduced him to Jim Croce, uh, probably got it wrong, another contestant in this bracket, at a young age and taught him guitar. His mother was a piano player, and at age 11, his dad took him on a month-long boat trip to Jamaica, where he learned to like reggae music, which became very evident in Sublime's musical style later on. At 16, he started playing in a band with bassist Eric Wilson, who eventually became Sublime's bassist. When he was 20, he found uh, drummer Bud Gaw, and they formed Sublime in 1988. Gaw and Wilson had grown up together and had always just played punk rock, but Noel introduced them to reggae and the ska sound that became Sublime's trademark sound. The band started playing shows all over Southern California, but they struggled to get into bars and venues. Their sound was weird, and no one really wanted to book them. It was all grunge at that time, so they had to stand out. Noel and Wilson decided to start a record label that they called Skunk Records to make them sound more legit. They would produce their own records and sell them at shows, which led to a pretty rapid growing following in Southern California. One of their friends was named Miguel Hadulp, Uh, And he eventually became their manager, but he was a student at a local music college, and he offered to sneak them into the recording studio after hours. They recorded a demo that included a number of their early hits, including Date Rape, Smoke Two Joints, and Bad Fish. They snuck back in there and recorded their first entire album, 40 Ounces to Freedom, in this college. Um, And that album included all three of those songs. The album went on to sell over 2 million copies and is one of the best-selling independent albums ever. Noel later said that they got around $30,000 worth of studio time for free, and the college never even knew that all that music had been recorded there. Now that's punk rock. Um, Date Rape started to get requests at a local LA radio station and became one of their most requested songs of that year. This eventually got them to sign to MCA Records, and they started to get some national attention after that. 
Noel had started experimenting with heroin early on. He had resisted it at first, but once the band started to gain a little bit of a following, he said he felt pressure to always be in his persona as the band leader. He had also heard that um, heroin helped with creativity, so he tried it to try and help expand some of his writing, and he became quickly addicted. Um, By the end, he was always high. His bandmates tried to get him clean, but they were unsuccessful. He briefly got clean when his son was born, but he relapsed soon afterwards. Um, their second album called Robin the Hood didn't do all that great. I didn't realize this, but they were on the initial Vans Warp Tour, which was a huge national tour that combined alternative music and skating. I used to go all the time when I was a kid. Um, they ended up getting kicked off the tour because they had a dog, which was called a it was a Dalmatian named Lou Dog. That would be on stage with them, and it kept biting people. So they didn't get kicked off because they were uh, being too much of a jerk. They were getting kicked off because their dog was too much of a jerk. But at this time, they put together their third album, which was the self-titled album, which was their first on MCA, and it went huge. This album went over five times platinum, and it was driven by four songs that had massive airtime in 1996 and 1997. The songs were What I Got, Santeria, Wrong Way, and Doing Time, all four charted near the top of the rock charts that year. Sadly, Noel didn't get to see his band reach the top. May, of, May 18th of 1996, he married the mother of his son, and seven days later, he was supposed to go on tour with his bandmates, They went to wake him up and found him unresponsive, with his dog curled up next to him whining. He had died that night from a heroin overdose. The album was released in July of that year, and it's crazy how well that did, going five times platinum and having four songs chart in the rock charts without any touring. They couldn't tour because the lead singer was dead. Sublime tried to replace him, but they couldn't do it, so the band broke up after that. Noel was only 28 years old when he passed away. And now on to our big two. I can't honestly believe that these two are five seeds, but I'm sticking with it. When you see who the top four are, I think you're going to find it tough to argue. The first name on this uh, five seed list is an artist I didn't know a ton about and honestly didn't know they had died so young. Uh, His name is Michael Hutchins from the band In Excess. This is the second Australian on the OD drug list after Andy Gibb. Hutchins lived a rather normal life as a kid. His parents moved around Australia and Southeast Asia, eventually ending up in Sydney. It was here that he met and befriended um, someone named Andrew Ferris. Eventually, the two of them joined with two other Ferris brothers, John and Tim, and they formed the core of what became In Excess. In 1979, they hired a manager and signed with a record company run by the former manager of ACDC, who who, who knew Australia, for ACDC. I didn't know that. I'm sure someone will berate me for that. Um, In the early 80s, they achieved local success within Australia. They produced two albums that charted there and had a few hits that didn't get outside of Australia. In 1982, they recorded their first album that would target international markets, which was called Shabu Shabo. Shabo Shabu? Anyhow, which peaked at number 52 on the Billboard 200. It hit number five in Australia and was there for 94 weeks. It included their first song that charted called The One Thing. It's a super 80s pop song. It got some airtime on MTV, which was just starting out at the time. You've probably heard it. It was uh, It's a real new wave sound that combined a lot of synthesizer, horns, and kind of a ska reggae sound. 
From here, they toured North America, the UK, Europe, Australia, pretty much nonstop. They were recording their next album, which is called The Swing, while touring, and it did really well globally, peaking at number 58 in the US. The song Original Sin was their first number one hit in Australia. And then their next album, Listen Like Thieves, had an 80s banger, What You Need. The song became a top five hit in the US and gave them the really massive breakout that they needed. The band peaked in 1987 with the album Kick. It reached number three in the US, number one on Australia, and it was their first to chart in the UK and it hit number nine. And it contained four songs that all hit number one in the US, including New Sensation, Need You Tonight, Devil Inside, and Never Tear Us Apart. The band continued to produce music until 1997 with mixed success. There was a number of concerts and four more albums, but Kick was really the peak of In Excess and Hutchins. Hutchins was very much in the public eye, largely because of his numerous very public relationships with other celebrities like Kylie Minogue, uh, Belinda Carlisle, who was the lead singer of the Go-Go's, and Victoria's Secret model Helena Christensen. At one point, uh, while biking with Christensen, he fell and hit his head on the road, which actually caused some pretty massive brain damage and a fractured skull. He was left with almost no sense of smell or taste, but the incident made him very depressed and a lot more aggressive. In the mid-90s, he started an affair with a TV personality named Paula Yates, who was married and had kids at the time. It was a super major scandal. It was all over the British tabloids. Hutchins assaulted a photographer who was following him at that point. In 1995, Yates divorced her husband named Bob Geldorf, Geldof, uh, who had been the organizer of the Live Aid concert. In 1996, she gave birth to his daughter, um, around that time, both Hutchins and Yates started using a number of drugs, including heroin, cocaine, and Prozac. In his memoirs, U2 singer Bono said that he had been really close friends with Hutchins and Yates, but he broke off contact with them after they started using drugs so heavily. Uh, Bono claimed that Hutchins had asked him to be the godfather to his daughter with Yates, but Bono turned him down because he was so hard to be around and the drugs had just kind of taken him over. In 1997, Yates was locked in a very bitter custody battle with his ex, with her ex-husband about uh, sh- her three daughters with him. Yates was supposed to come and see Hutchins in Australia with his daughter and the three daughters, but uh, her ex-husband, Geldof, blocked the trip. He said he didn't want his kids going that far, and he prevented Yates from bringing Hutchins' daughter to see him. This threw Hutchins into a depressed rage. Um, his body was discovered the next morning in his hotel room, and he was only 37 years old. His autopsy found traces of cocaine, Prozac, and alcohol in his system. He had actually died of strangulation from a belt around his neck, but it was really mysterious how he had died. It seemed more like an attempted auto-asphyxiation orgasm than a suicide. The coroner ruled that he had committed suicide under the influence of the drugs that had been in his system. Sadly, Yates died of a heroin OD three days, three years later, so their daughter was left uh, an orphan um, due to these drugs, which is, it's incredibly sad. And finally, his opponent, I can only imagine that I'm going to get some flack for having this person this low, is Janis Joplin. This is our first member of the 27 Club in this sub-bracket. Joplin was born in Texas and was an outcast throughout high school. She was very different from most of the people she had met in Texas. Little known fact, she was in the same high school class as future Hall of Fame football coach Jimmy Johnson. 
Um, she started going to college in Texas, but didn't finish. In 1963, at age 20, she decided she needed to get out of Texas, and she hitchhiked to San Francisco. She said her head was in a much different place than Texas. While there, she started recording a few bluesy, folksy songs with the guitarist from Jefferson Airplane, whose name was Jorma Kokinen. Um, They got released after her death and were called the typewriter tapes. It was at this time that she started experimenting with drugs and drinking heavily. She would inject methamphetamines, heroin, and other psychedelics. And in 1965, her friends told her that she needed to get out of there. She looked emaciated and had to move home. When she got home, her parents said she only weighed 88 pounds, which is insane. Um, When she got home, they tried to help her clean up her act. She stopped taking drugs. She stopped drinking. She enrolled in Lamar University as an anthropology major. She cut her hair into a beehive, which is crazy to think of Janis Joplin with a beehive. She didn't give up on singing, though. She would commute from her home in Port Arthur to Austin to perform as a solo act. While there, she would see a psychiatrist and would often talk about how she wanted to return to performing as a music, but that she was really worried about relapsing into her drug lifestyle. In 1966, a promoter she had met while she was in San Francisco named Chet Helms came to Austin to find her and ask her to come back to San Francisco to join a band. She went to inform her parents that she'd be joining a band and told them that she was moving to Austin. She ended up moving all the way to San Francisco and joining a band named Big Brother and the Holding Company. The band started touring across the U.S. They toured Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, other cities. She met and became friends with another contestant in our bracket, Pigpen McKernan, and the other members of the Grateful Dead at this time. They toured together for a while. In late 67, the band put out their first album, which was self-titled. The song Down On Me charted and brought a little success. They played the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and this got her some attention. They performed at Martin Luther King's Wake with Jimi Hendrix, Joni Mitchell, and a few others. Her profile within the band began to grow, and there was actually some resentment from the other members. In 1968, their label actually changed the name of their billing to Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. Joplin began to become frustrated because the band kind of sucked. They were sloppy. They couldn't get through songs. She would do it perfect on the first time. And they would mess up so many times that they had to re-record everything. They tried to put together an album and it took a long time for the other band members to actually get things done because they weren't good enough to match up to her. In 1968, they recorded and released their second album, which was titled Cheap Thrills. This was the album that blew Janice up. Her vocals on this album are incredible. The song Peace of My Heart is one of her best known performances and it's almost impossible for other singers to replicate. It reached number 12 on the big the Billboard charts. Summertime was another tour de force. The album reached number one on the Billboard Hot 200 charts and spent eight weeks on top. I was looking at the album cover art, and in the corner, there's a seal of approval from the San Francisco Hells Angels Club, which is pretty crazy. I read into it a little bit. I guess the Big Brother and the Holding Company used to do a bunch of concerts for the Hells Angels. Uh, at like their headquarters and stuff like that back in the day, which, you know, try and do that now and it wouldn't fly. Um, However, after the album was released, though, Joplin announced she was leaving the band to start another career or look for another band. Um, At this time, she formed a backup band called the Cosmic Blues Band, and they immediately started working on her first album, and it got released 
and it was called I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again, Mama. The song Try Just a Little Bit Harder and To Love Somebody um, were the most played songs off this album. The sound of this album was much less psychedelic and much more bluesy, um, but it, so it didn't do as well as some of the things from Big Brother. Um, it was at this time, though, that she performed at Woodstock. She wasn't really happy with her performance, but she stuck around for the whole festival. Um, she was on stage for the first time when Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young performed together, um, and she really was just kind of hanging out with everybody. However, it became apparent around this time, though, that she wasn't right. She was doing a lot of heroin. Um, she performed a duet with Tina Turner at a Rolling Stones concert, and one of her biographers didn't think she was going to make it through the show. And she actually tried to incite a riot uh, of the crowd while she was performing. Throughout her life, um, Joplin had an on-again, off-again relationship with a woman named Peggy Costera. Uh, the two dated. They were friends. They would often interfere with each other's relationships because they couldn't get away from each other. They would often move away from each other, but then run into each other at shows years later and rekindle their friendship or relationship. They both were addicts. And anytime one of them would get clean, the other they'd run into each other, get back together, and start using again. So it's one of those self-destructive relationships. Um, Peggy actually wrote a book about go, it was called like "Going Down with Janice" or something like that about how they would just kind of tear each other apart. She left her band at that time and formed a new band called the Full Tilt Boogie Band. She seemed to have a tough time finding a band that matched her skills, but she said she felt like she finally had one that actually matched up with her. They moved to LA and began working on another album. She recorded the song, she recorded the songs Cry Baby, Mercedes Benz, and another of Umber's other songs just days before her death. Mercedes Benz was recorded the day before her death in a single take. On October 4th, Castera was um Caserta, sorry, was supposed to meet her at a hotel, but she didn't show up and she never called. And this threw Joplin into some depression. She did a bunch of heroin and was found dead the next morning. It was found out that her dealer had gotten a bad batch of heroin because there actually were a number of other ODs in LA that night um, from people that had bought drugs from that dealer. After her death, her last album, Pearl, was released, and this was by far her most successful album, with songs like Cry Baby, Mercedes Benz, and Me and Bobby McGee. The album debuted at number one and stayed there for nine weeks, selling over four million albums. A number of other songs went to number one, and sadly, Joplin died after finding a band that could actually match her musical prowess. So, that's the group. Um, I feel like I need a drink after going through that because the, it is just, it's so sad. Um, this group feels like it all, they all died so young. Michael Hutchins and Andy Gibb were the only ones over the age of 30. Sid Vicious and Juice World were both only 21. I knew Juice World and Mac Miller, but after digging into them, it's crazy how much content both of them were able to create in their short, short lives. Just so shows how a system like SoundCloud and TikTok and other independent release platforms can have on the musical industry. Uh, how many of these artists had albums released right after their death that turned out to be their best stuff? I mean, um, Noel and Sublime, um, 
Juice World and his his album, and then uh, Janice had her biggest album. It just it seems like they almost had to die uh, in order to become popular. I actually listened to this other group um, called Paris, and they have a song called Evergreen. And there's a big line in it that said, "No one cares unless you're dead or 17," which I think um, is kind of apt, right? Like it's uh, when you die, your best stuff comes along, or when you're super young. Um, because I'm working through this pod, I thought that line really stuck with me. So, and now we vote. There is a link in the description to vote for matchups. I've also included a link to my Spotify list for this group. There are some real bangers on there, so check it out. If you could give the pod a five star or a thumbs up or share it in some way, shape, or form, that really does help. I do really appreciate you listening and checking it out. And remember, if you don't like the results, you can't argue with the process. If you don't like how things are going, the only way you can change it is to invite more of your friends with similar music tastes to vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy the madness. Mm-hmm.